Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Mvemba Pezo Dizolele. I'm a senior fellow and the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. This is a podcast where we talk everything Africa, politics, economics, security, and culture. Welcome. The African diaspora is significant and diverse. From Brazil, with its large African population, to the Caribbean and the United States, to Europe and the Gulf Arab states, Africans and their descendants make important contributions. Their impact and influence are felt in all sectors of public life, the art, sport, science, technology, politics, and world affairs. The United States Congressional Black Caucus, for instance, played a critical role in getting the U.S. to pressure South Africa through sanction to end the apartheid regime. Africans living overseas have also been an important economic force across the continent. The Brookings Institution estimate that in 2019, remittances, money sent by migrants to family back home, reached 550 billion US dollars, which surpassed foreign direct investment and official development aid. Remittance flows to Sub-Saharan Africa were recorded to be $48 billion that same year. The African diaspora is full of qualified and talented professionals. However, one of the main challenges for Africa has been the transfer of knowledge from the diaspora to the homeland. On one hand, Africans living overseas are very attached to their countries of origin and often long to return and contribute to development. But conditions on the ground are not always conducive to such a return, which is a net loss for Africa. Joining me today on Into Africa is Amini Kajunju. Amini is the Chief Operating Officer at the Ellen Johnson Sirleaf Presidential Center for Women and Development in Monrovia, in Liberia. She is a former President and Chief Executive Officer of the Africa America Institute in New York City, and she has also served as the executive director of the Workshop in Business Opportunities, also in New York City, among many other positions. Aminika Junju, good afternoon and welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for joining us all the way from Monrovia, Liberia today. This is an honor for us. And I'm really, of course, excited to have you on Into Africa for a set of reasons. We'll get to the more serious one in a minute, but you and I have known each other since we were kids, really. We were still in undergrad. I remember meeting you at a conference that I attended at your college. And it's been so many years, so we've seen our various paths go their own ways. So in many ways, we're all proud of your accomplishment. I think I was there when you were doing internships, like all of us. I remember you taking an internship in Bolivia, an internship in Kenya. I remember you moving to New York, but also all the other times that our paths have crossed. So it's a pleasure and really an honor to see you become what you've become professionally and otherwise. So again, welcome. You are one of these uh, diaspora people that I talked about a few seconds ago who have longed about going home, who have gathered knowledge and experience overseas. In your case, you were born in DRC. And then what happened? Well, so my father, I think, is the central person in this story in terms of what happened. My father traveled the world for education and for opportunities. 
And so we came to the United States initially because my father received a scholarship to complete a PhD in Colorado. So here we were in the 80s, Congolese kids moving to Colorado in the cold of October. That's when the journey began, the diaspora journey began. But I have to say, there was another story prior to that, which is, you know, we traveled to Japan when I was really a baby. And my father, again, received a scholarship to study in Japan. And so we moved there as kids, my brother and I. And then, you know, we came back to Congo when he completed his, his studies there. Ah, okay. So already, I think as a kid, you were what I've heard people term Afropolitan. You're already Afropolitan. So you went back to Congo. And then how was your journey to Liberia? You also have connection to Liberia and to the United States, yes. which you have mentioned. Exactly. Our story is really interesting. My family story is really interesting. I mean, it's not uncommon. I think many of us on the African continent have similar stories. But again, my father is a central person in this story. We lived in America and life in America was not what my father wanted it to be. He was highly educated, highly skilled, but yet he was not given jobs, the jobs that he thought he deserved, even with all his skills. And so after several years in United States, he decided that we should move to Monrovia. And we moved to Monrovia in the 80s. And when he came, he found a great job that fit his experience and his education We set roots here in Monrovia, and I attended school here, high school here, and so did my brother. And, you know, Liberia sort of became our life, and, and we were doing very well here. My father was very happy about the opportunities that he found here. And then, of course, the war happened. And like everyone else in Liberia, my family fled the war, and, you know, they're very sort of difficult stories that came out of that. But, you know, we, we survived and ended up back in the United States again, as uh, many people did during that period. So you have had the experience, if I understand you here, you have two homes, really. You have the DRC, is kind of the country of your birth and your blood. And then you have this country that has shaped your childhood and the upper childhood, adolescence, which uh, these are critical years, which were Liberia. So Liberia, of course, you knew the good Liberia. Is the Liberia that functioned Is the Liberia was a maritime business actor? It's a Liberia that was a destination for a lot of people in the sub-region. was considered a stable place. When you came to the U.S., how was that experience different? Obviously, it's the war. I cannot, I cannot even imagine the shock of going through a war and then fleeing a country where you have set your roots. And in the case of your parents, even really more devastating. But also as a kid, kids are very attached to the place. So how was the transition from Monrovia back to the U.S.? You know, Liberia in that part of my life really actually, I always say this, saved my brother and I. And what do I mean by that? When we were living in the United States as preteens, we started to lose ourselves. We were questioning our Africanness. We were being teased for being African. We were being teased for the food that we ate. We were being teased for the names that we had. And moving to Liberia, 
was a lifesaver. We were part of an African diaspora that was very proud. We met so many Congolese here, Tanzanians, and of course we created great friendships with Liberians themselves. And then ultimately many of our good friends, you know, we still maintain today. And then of course some members of my family are Liberians. So, you know, Liberia became a very important country in our family. Moving to America after having spent time in Liberia was actually a very positive thing because we went back to America with a strong sense of self, a strong sense of what it meant to be African. And frankly, even though we hadn't moved to Congo, it actually strengthened our understanding what it meant to be Congolese. And then, of course, just in a bigger sense, what it meant to be African. And so with that, at least for me, career-wise, it really set the path for the type of career that I wanted to have. I decided then and then that I wanted to have a career that kept me connected to Africa. And so I've left lots of money on the table, lots of interesting opportunities that would take me to other paths because it wasn't keeping me on the Africa path. Because as your introductory said, I wanted to make an impact on the African continent, even if I wasn't physically living on the African continent. Very good. Interesting. So you did this path, this professional trail, went to New York after you graduated, worked in different countries, internships and so on. Became the first African to run the Africa America Institute, which made all of us proud. But then you had your own career. You went on to run, uh, before that you'd run Weibo with helping entrepreneurs in New York City with the skill set. Then what possessed you? All of a sudden you decided you want to uproot your family, go back to Liberia. <laughs> well, what is all that about? <laughs> You know, as we all know, life can take you into so many different interesting paths. Oftentimes, you, you put an idea, as they say, into the universe. And here's what I had put into the universe two, three years ago. I said, I want to move to the continent. I've been working for African adjacent institutions, and I've been in and out of the continent now for the past 20 years. And as you've mentioned, it's really been an incredible ride for me. And I've learned a lot. It's been humbling. It's been incredible. I've met some very amazing people and I've had incredible work opportunities. But it became very important to me professionally to actually physically be on the African continent and work from the continent. And so I put that into the universe. I did not make a distinction as to where I would go specifically. It didn't matter to me. I could go to Ghana, to South Africa, to Kenya. It just so happened that the opportunity that I received and accepted happened to lend me back to Monrovia. So there must be a reason for that. I may not know the reason now, but it's just so interesting that I've come back to the African country that, as I said before, you know, saved us, at least uh, psychologically, from the racism, you know, of America. So, in other words, the ancestors and the spirits, the gods of Liberia were calling you back home. They called me back. <laughs> yes. Tell us a little bit. Then, this is obviously a different Liberia. What is the experience of taking yourself and your family to this place which I presume is traveling through time, but finding things, the place totally different, but then also discovering this new place, which is not what you left behind. Man, you know, that there's a lot in that question. So first of all, I think it's very interesting that I've moved back to work for uh, President Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, former President Ellen Johnson Sirleaf. That, I think, is a phenomenal opportunity that I, I could not pass up. 
What's fascinating about that is, first of all, she's the first democratically elected president that the African continent has ever had. But in 1986, former President Ellen Johnson Sirleaf was coming out of jail, and there was a big article about her in the newspaper. And I remember as a teenager looking at the picture of her in the newspaper and just being in awe of the fact that here was this woman who had taken up this political stance to end corruption and to really bring change to her country. And she seemed so fearless. And for us attending St. Teresa Convent, all of us girls attending that school, we were just in awe of this person. And we thought to ourselves, wow, if she can do that, then we know we, we should be able to do anything. So I think that's really significant that I had that almost life-changing experience reading the, this article that talked about, you know, the things that former President Ellen Johnson Sirleaf was trying to do with Liberia and trying to bring change to her country. And then to turn around and come back and work for her, it's quite amazing. So this was as a teenager that you saw her when she came out of, uh, yes. of prison. That's right. So tell us, what's this organization you work with? You say you had this convergence of things that's led you to this job. What is the job and what was this real interaction with her? What is it like? The job itself is obviously the title chief operating officer. But the work that we do here is threefold. One, in the name, you'll see the word women and development. And so one of our main mission is to ensure that women are at the decision-making table and that they seek careers in public service that takes them to the highest level of public leadership. Right, this is called the Ellen Johnson Sirleaf Presidential Center for Women and Development. Exactly. That's really important for women in development, right? That's really important. I mean, obviously the full name is important because women are connected to development. And if you decouple women from development, what are you doing, right? And then the second thing that we do that's really important is that we make sure that we create opportunities for research and strategic communication to amplify the voices of women, to amplify the challenges, to amplify the opportunities, to amplify the set of information that policymakers need to have in order to make sure that women are at the decision-making table. So we're engaged in research, we're engaged in strategic communication. And then the last but not least, and it, you know, as they say, la pièce de résistance, <laughs> and that is the building of the first presidential center by a female president. There is no such center on the planet. There are presidential libraries and museums for obviously male presidents, mainly in the United States. But this will be the first presidential center, library, and museum built by a female president. And I feel very proud to be a part of making that happen. And within this center, obviously, we'll have a museum, we'll have a library, but we'll also have opportunities for training, for learning, for conferences, for exchanges. We really want it to be a place where men and women, young and old, can come and get inspired by what women have been able to do and will continue to do into the future. Okay, so this is fascinating. I want to go back to this. So the first part, you see the presidential center, which deals with this library, and the other one is women. Let's go back to the women. What type of program does the center run? How old is the center? But how big is the program? What do you do exactly for women in advancing this initiative? And then we'll talk to the challenges of the library itself and conceiving and building such an institution in Liberia. 
You know, one of the things that former President Ellen Johnson Sirleaf wanted to realize after, you know, finishing her mandate is that she didn't want to be the only female president that has that distinction. It's really about legacy building and making sure that other women come along and are distinguished in their own right. And so one of our flagship programs is the Amuje program, which was started about two years ago. Remember, we're still quite young. We're officially two years old. We just celebrated our second year anniversary a couple of weeks ago. So we're still relatively young, but I think we're punching above our weight nevertheless. So our flagship program is the Amuje program, which zeroes in on women who are seeking higher office in the public service, in the government sphere. And we provide them with mentorship, coaching, training, and support from key coaches who can support them through that journey. So we are looking for women who may be currently a mayor of a city and they're thinking, you know, someday I may want to be president. What's that pathway? We may be looking at a governor of a province and then, you know, what's that next step? We may be looking at a minister and then thinking about what's that next step for that minister. Or we may be looking at someone who is high up in an agency like the UN or the World Trade Organization and some of these international agencies, and then thinking about what's the pathway for that next step, for that next big leap. And so that's what the Amuji program is about. As we grow, we're thinking about adding new programs, but the three things that I've mentioned are the three things that we're focused on for today. And these women all Liberians, or is this an Africa-wide program? Yeah, that's another thing that President Ellen Johnson Sirleaf is very focused on, and that is that this is a Pan-African institution. The Amuje Initiative has leaders from all over the continent, Southern Africa to West Africa to East Africa to North Africa. And also the president is very focused on the fact that we have diversity in language. So making sure that we have francophone, anglophone, and you know all the other languages that are represented on the African continent so that we really cover the full continent. This is a very continental-wide initiative. And so it's a mentorship. So how would they describe it? Coaching. So training, coaching. And they don't have to move to Liberia. They can be wherever they are and you provide them with the support they need. Is that correct? That's correct. The other thing that's really interesting about this program is President Ellen Johnson Sirleaf is connected to lots of world leaders, both male and female. And so one of the things that we do is make sure that we pull together a list of coaches that are very accomplished women and also our male allies and make sure that our Muje leaders have access to those coaches. You know, one of the things that I think sets us apart from other program is the networks that is attached to Madam President. And then our Muje leaders being able to have access to those networks. As you and I well know, and you and I have talked about this many times, oftentimes it's not capacity that's the issue. It's not big dreams that people have, but oftentimes it's access to the right people access to the right mentors, access to the right set of information so that you can then make decisions, those career decisions that take you to the next level. And so we're trying to close that information gap and have our leaders, you know, have access to the information that they need in order to make those decisions. Very impressive. How many, I don't know if you call them fellows, how many Amuje fellows do you have? Or madams or mademoiselles. Well, I mean, they're right. They're Amuje leaders and we have cohort. Amuje leaders. Okay, thank you. Amuje leaders. Amuje leaders. We have cohort number one, cohort number two, and we're in the process of securing, you know, cohort number three. It's 15 per cohort. 
So once you are an Amuje leader, you're forever an Amuje leader. And we make sure that once we choose the, the newest cohort, we'll put a lot of time and effort into them and making sure that we meet their needs. But we also are in constant collaboration and contact with the former cohorts. And ultimately, you know, we want these cohorts to work together because it's not just what the center offers the cohorts, but it's also what they offer each other. And that's the other thing that makes this program really interesting is that the ability for these cohorts to come together and support each other in any way that makes sense. And I think many female leaders across the world are very focused on this. That is making sure that women are helping other women and supporting other women wherever they can. So that's an important part of the work that we do. And so once you're in the system, not only when you go through it, you get the support, but then you pay it back or you pay it forward. Absolutely. You're paying it back through the leaders that are coming behind you that are part of the network. You pay forward in the way that you'll be monitoring other people along your way. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's a really great way of putting it. And I think, again, Madam exemplifies that. She takes her time, a very precious time I might have, and is focused on making sure that the Amuje leaders have access to her and can really pick her brain, so to speak, on how to develop a career in the public space. And then we want to make sure that all of our coaches do the same. So our Muji leaders, I think, are very grateful, I think, and find this a very positive element of the program, this accessibility to these amazing networks. Let's now go back to the presidential center part, the presidential part of it, the library. We've seen presidential libraries. You and I have lived in the U.S. where I am now. You have decided to return home. It takes a lot of capabilities, the setting, technology, upkeep, filling the place with whatever material that needs to go there, archives, the classified archives, and then making it accessible to the population at large, researchers and others. What is that challenge like for, for you at this point, two years into this? Of course, you've been here just a few months, but two years into this, the initiative itself, what are some of the challenges that you have to tackle as an institution? You said it, we are very early days in this process, but we're very cognizant of, I would say, five very important things that we must pull together in order for this center to be what, it, what we want it to be. One, clearly, we have to start with funding. So we must raise money and we must raise a lot of money in order for us to realize the construction of this presidential center. The second thing that we must do is understand and really have a strong grasp of the important content, archives content that we have in order for the public to eventually being able to enjoy it. So I mean, we're talking about everything from documents to photos to physical items to videos to CDs to clothing. And this is just for Madam President, sort of all of the content that will come just from her. We need to sort of account for it and then understand their value as it pertains to the library and the museum. And then the third element is pulling together the same type of content, but for women leaders from other regions of the world, certainly in Africa and other parts of the world as well. So weaving Madam's story with a global women leadership story, I think is going to be very important to this process. And then number four, is making sure that we have the right expertise on our team, internal and external. So we have a great team now. We'll add to this team as resources allow. 
We have architects that are working with us. We have exhibit designers that are working with us. We have a whole host of partners that are working with us in order to make this museum a reality. And then last but not least, it is Madam's President Center. And so her stamp has to be on this. So it's a place that she needs to be very proud of. And I think as we're working steadily towards completion, construction of this project, I think that will happen. And then as we're going through all this process, it's going to be very important for us to make sure that we bring in the audience, the audience that we want to bring into this library. The audience is going to be global, but it's also going to be very local. So it's that balance between making sure that the average librarian can walk into this library and say, wow, I now know more about Madam. I now know more about Liberia. I know more about Africa. I know more about the contribution of women. And then also we want it to be a global process, a global representation of women leadership. So this could be a, a tourist attraction for Liberia. This could bring tourism money for Liberia. But we also want to have it so that even if someone is living in Kenya and they want to see what the library is doing, that interactive technological element is going to be very important as well. So it's obviously an ambitious project, to say the least. Very Are there ambitious. any other projects like this on the continent? Or is this going to be the first of its time? I think former President wow. Tobias Sanjo has a library, you know? Yeah. Are there the presidential library? This is obviously a center for women development and all that stuff, so there's more attached to it. But are there any other comparative organization you can look at? I think you just said it best. I mean, I think, yes, there are presidential centers, museum libraries. Obviously, Nelson Mandela has his in South Africa. Tambo Mbeki is creating one as we speak. And then obviously, former President Obasanjo has one in Abuja. And those are all very good and meaningful projects. But I think, you know, we will work with all of the presidential centers that I just mentioned because we'll be a small family of presidential centers on the African continent. So we'll work together. But I think, you know, again, this is going to be a very interesting and unique project that has not been seen before on the planet. Let's then go back to going back to Liberia. We did not develop that. You started talking about it. We veered off to what the center does and the women initiative and all that. But you go back to this place. You've been there for a few months now. Tell us about what that experience is like trying to settle in the country that you left during the war. You're going now that it's post-conflict. I've not been to Liberia, but I suspect things have been destroyed. The infrastructure has fallen apart and everything needs to be rebuilt. When I think of this, I'm thinking of an Italian film called Cinema Paraiso. Toto goes back to his, after so many years of being away, going back and reliving part of his childhood. Obviously, it was not post-conflict, but we're just a new world altogether. Yeah, so it's interesting. I created a hashtag called Adulting in Monrovia. It's me relating to the fact that when I first came to Liberia, I was not an adult. <laughs> I was a kid. But now I'm an adult and I'm adulting in Liberia and I have a husband and I have a daughter. And so that integration has been interesting. To be perfectly honest, it's been quite good and pleasant. And even if when we run into challenges, we've been able to overcome them quite quickly because of my previous connection to Liberia. So many friends, you know, people that I went to school with or people who are connected to people who I went to school with have stepped in and, and been very helpful, pointing us to places that we need to use in order to make our lives here as productive and as pleasant as possible. But 
We cannot understate the fact that Liberia is in a post-war phase of its development. There are challenging elements to living in Liberia. Electricity, the provision of electricity is not where it needs to be. The provision of basic public services is not where it needs to be. And also, when you think about the diaspora, when I think about my classmates, I was thinking about it the other day. How, what's the percentage of those who have come back? I haven't done a, a scientific study on it, but I think it's maybe, maybe it's 15% who've come back. But that's talent that's being used elsewhere. And that could be, you know, that could be used here potentially. And it's talent that is much needed. Like everywhere else in Africa, there's a human development issue in Liberia that has to be addressed in order for Liberia to reach its potential. And so, as you know, that's really where my heart sits, education, training, human development. And in the absence of that, you know, Liberia will continue to struggle. What has been the most shocking experience so far? I know you said it's pleasant, but it cannot be all pleasant. Sorry, I'm cynical. <laughs> the biggest shock for me, and it's such a low-hanging fruit, typically, it's the lack of basic public service, including trash pickup, public school education, and obviously, you know, health care, making sure that people have the health care that they need. If you're not making a certain amount of money, You're not accessing certainly education and healthcare at the adequate level. And in Monrovia, at least, the amount of trash that is literally just all over the city is quite a sad scene. And dare I say, it's actually an easy, solvable problem. Of all the issues that one needs to deal with when building a country, trash pickup should be a low-hanging fruit. And it's unfortunate that that's not happening. So that's a challenge. And the most of pleasant of experiences so far? Watching my daughter integrate herself so well here. There was a professional goal that I had, but I also had a personal goal. I really wanted my daughter to have the experiences that I had. From a traveling and from a global perspective, I actually had a great childhood. I got to go to Japan. I got to go to, to the United States. I got to go to Liberia. It all before the age of 18. So I really wanted my daughter to have an experience that wasn't just 100% American because her parents are not you know, 100% Americans. I really wanted to have an African experience and it's been really pleasant watching her integrate into the system and watching her defend the continent to her friends. She clarifies when they say things that are untrue, things like, oh, do you have drinking water? And Saha is like, of course we have drinking water. You know, we, we've all, we, as Africans, we, we, know, we know what happens when people think of Africa. They think of death, disease, despair. And so Saha is able to, uh, you know, give them uh, a, a more, uh, you know, balanced picture of, of what's happening here. That's, uh, that's very good. I think when she comes back, nobody will be making fun of her like they did when you were here the first time. Nope. She will speak about it with a lot of confidence, I suppose. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And that's what I want for her. I definitely want her before she goes to college. I want her to feel very confident in her Africanness, in her Congoleseness, in her Senegaleseness, and in her Americanness. So and the Liberianness now. And now in her Liberianness. So I, she's a Pan-Africanist so, now. That's right. That's right. I, I'm fulfilling a professional uh, dream, but I'm also fulfilling a personal dream as well. Is this an experience that you recommend to fellow Africans in the diaspora? 
Absolutely. They return. Absolutely. I think those of us in the diaspora, we think of ourselves as, you know, having gotten used to a certain way of life and we get very afraid of making that change. But for me, I think there's very little fear to have because most of us are deeply talented and we'll have a much better life than others. So I think if you can, especially if you have little ones that you're caring for that are Africans, I think it's important to see if you can have an African experience with your family. And, you know, in my case, I didn't go back to Congo, but as you mentioned, I'm a Pan-Africanist. To me, I feel very comfortable in any country in the world, but I certainly feel very comfortable in any country in Africa. And so I'm agnostic about the country. I'm just really focused on the experience and what I can give to where I'm living. Very good. This is the first time I meet a Congolese who's agnostic about the country. <laughs> don't tell my family. They don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> agnostic. Congolese agnostic. It's quite rare. Definitely a rare bird in that respect. On this program, we always talk about the gap. I don't know if you've listened to some of our episodes before. I have. The gap between the perception of what Liberia is and what you're really finding on the field. What is that gap? How do we close that gap? I would even answer this question on a broader scale, on a continental scale. I think we have about four issues that we need to deal with in terms of the gap. I think we have a public policy issue. I think we have a coordination issue. I think we have an expectation issue. And I think we also have a power and, and a solution, I, I dare say, to public policy issue, coordination issue, and expectation issue is potentially powers and, you know, the power in numbers. So on the public policy side, most of us in the diaspora do not want to get involved with government. And you and I have had this conversation many times. Governments are part of an economic development story. You can't do it without them. So again, this is why the work that I'm doing here at the center is so important because it's really about making sure in this case that women are part of the public service infrastructure and therefore potentially create public policy that really move the continent forward, that move Liberia forward. So in the absence of good public policy that is infused by local knowledge and those of us in the diaspora, we kind of come together with that and create public policy that move a country forward. I think we're going to continue to have some serious gaps. We also have a coordination issue. Except for those of us who have access to dollars from Silicon Valley and other places to run, particularly some of these fintech businesses that are springing up all over Africa, and it's fantastic. The stories are really good. We're talking about multi-billion dollar valuation of some of these companies, companies being able to raise money in a short amount of time because of the connection that they have with Silicon Valley. And those of us in the diaspora are able to access that money. If you don't fall into that category, then you're doing it alone. You're trying to make change on your own and there's not a coordinating body, whether from a public service perspective, whether from a government perspective, nor from a private sector perspective. So we have a lot of wonderful energy, but they're all being siloed and everybody's in their own little corner doing their bit. And so I think some additional coordination in terms of diaspora engagement, in terms of how we can change various African countries is important. And this last one, expectation. So I participated in a conference not too long ago, and a person said that it's easier for a British national to set foot in Lagos or in Accra and set up shop and make it happen for him or herself. But us Africans, when we do it, we become so frustrated so quickly. 
because we, we are psychologically and emotionally connected to the places that we, we live. If I go to Congo today and I see something that I don't like, it'll frustrate me and it'll make me mad. And because I'm Congolese, I'll take it very personally. While others who may not be Congolese may look at that as an opportunity and may take that pain or that frustration and turn it into a business. And so I think as Africans, we really do need to check our expectation at the door if we're serious about really being part of the change value chain, because expectations can frustrate someone and then they'll stop you from seeing the things that you can do and, they, and they'll stop you from having the patience and the humility necessary to really see something through. Very insightful. Aminika Junju, you are your father's daughter. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for listening. We want to have more conversations about Africa. Tell your friends. Subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts. You can also read our analysis and report at csis.org slash Africa. So long. So long.